Welcome to the dark forest. Jackie and her pals will never bore us. Shameless confessions about our obsessions will make us laugh and smile. So let's explore the dark forest and dark down for a while. It's Jackie Cation. Welcome to the Dork Forest. It's exciting times. Uh, you know the websites, dorkforest.com, thedorkforest.com. JackieCation.com is my stand-up uh, website. You could go there and see my schedule and buy merch. There's a donation button, of course. You've used it. I appreciate uh, Of course, there's merchandise, the Ranger of the Dork Forest t-shirt, both of my CDs, and as always, a free Dork Forest magnet whenever you order anything. And if you just want a magnet, send me $2, unless you're not from the United States. Then send me $3, because it's a pain in the Okay. Okay. In other news, the credits, Patrick Brady fixes the audio. Mike Rickberg sang that song you you heard, and he's going to sing at the end again. And Vilmos fixes the website. There are Android and iPhone apps that are linkable off of dorkforest.com that you can buy if you want. And um, freakingawesomenetwork.com is a great resource if you want to get reviews of comic books and anime and uh, action figures and whatnot. And we are doing a cross-pollination thing, so I'm plugging freakingawesomenetwork.com. And check it out. Sitting in my living room is my guest, Mr. Ed Krasnick, friend of the people. How are you, sir? I am so happy to be here. Uh, I, You know, I don't know, Jackie, if you ever saw the movie American Graffiti, but if you did... George Lucas's pre-Star Wars work, if I remember correctly. George Lucas's life story. <laughs> Ama- yeah, that's right. This yes. was pre-Star with P.S. And when <laughs> And what it, what it was was that uh, they went by a window there, uh, Richard Dreyfus, and he, he Wolfman Jack is a big idol of his. Right. And he goes by – nobody knows where Wolfman broadcasts from. Mm-hmm. So he goes by a window and the guy claims he's not Wolfman Jack. But he can clearly see in the corner of his eye, he sees the window and he sees him broadcasting. And that is the feeling that I have today sitting here opposite you because – we are in we are in a, a beautifully lit living room. Right. Here in Van Nuys. And you thought that I was a black man. I thought originally you were a black man. I was very surprised. Right, right. And I thought, who's Jackie Cation? And then I did that <laughs> 70s uh, stereotypical black guy. And then I was sued for a while. Right. Yeah. No, but in, in the heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that happened. But 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 anyway, this is this is um, it's fantastic. I listened to the show. I've heard the show. Uh, it's great. And now I know why it's so great, because we're just talking. That's right. And what I forgot to do, we were talking so much before the show, and I was like, let's start recording the show before we talk and, and some of these cool stories don't get recorded. I forgot to get your credits. And we know that you, you, the, the Sanders... The, I did. The, uh, I did. What did I do? Curb your enthusiasm. That's it. Curb your enthusiasm. Was one of them. That, yeah. Full of tension. Curb your enthusiasm. I have a hard time sometimes watching it because I'm like, oh man, these people are. They're actually alive. And it's like <laughs> watching people make terrible life choices in real time. You know, and 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 I'll tell you, <laughs> I I do so much of that on my own that watching it is sort of like rubbing it in my face. It's well, doubling. It does feel like salt in the wounds. Yeah. It is too much sometimes for me when it's. I don't know. And then I, I will tell you a story though about uh, I went to a premiere of something at one point and it was at the Hollywood Bowl and it was called Band of Brothers. That HBO uh, World War II thing. Right. Now, Band of Brothers, you got to picture this. They have made up the Hollywood Bowl for the premiere HBO to look like an army barracks. Ooh. So it's like, an uh, let's do an army theme. You know, we'll just do, do an army theme. We're going to have John Williams conduct live. Wow. We're going to have Tom Hanks speak. We're going to have Steven Spielberg. They'll speak. Right. The writer will speak. Who did Shawshank? They're all going to speak. 
And we're going to have the original World War II guys, who the movie is based on, sitting in the crowd. What? Now, not only are we going to have the World War II guys, we're going to salute them. How are we going to salute them? By putting off, uh, by doing fireworks. Now, these are guys who have come through a war. Right. Granted, 60 years ago. Yeah, but one of the best ways not to salute people from a war (laughs) is to do fireworks near their heads. Is that a good idea? Was that thought out by the HBO executives? Well, you know, what what I love about Los Angeles is that they're like, we're going to do World War II, and then, like ants, they all show up, and all of a sudden, you were living in World War II. It's like driving, whenever I drive around Los Angeles at night, I'm like, Oh, I take it somebody knows someone who does lighting because yeah. everyone's yeah. houses are so well lit and artistically so. And It is very artistic. It is not. You cannot have a conversation with anyone because it's none of it's real. <laughs> none That's of the it, problem. Nobody has feelings. None of, or if they do, they're not going to tell you. It feels very facade sometimes where you're like, oh, it it's is. a good looking outfit. Is there anything behind it? No, nope, no. Nope, it's an space. old west town. Yeah. Well, this, <laughs> is, well, this is. And I, I, I admire the old day. You know, I think being on a lot in the old days of the studio system. Where you walk down a car, you walk down a lot in Paramount, and you see a guy dressed as a full Indian chief talking to his agent. That, to me, is life. I want to live in that world, and then when I leave that world, I want to go to a real world. Right, and what would that world look like? Fantastic. You sit at your Bill Fence. You, no. walk, you walk by Billy Wilder. You walk by an office. There's Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond. One of them's laying on the couch. The other one's trying to come up with an idea. Right. It's Pleasantville. It would be, yeah. you, you know what? You remind me of my brother Russ because uh, that is a guy who all he would do, he said one time that uh, he took his wife to Disney World and there was all he's ever wanted in his life is there to be. A restaurant that he can go to, put on a tuxedo, and go dance, and be where Ricky Ricardo plays Babalu. Like, he wants to go to Cuba in 1952. Sure. Is what he wants to do. Sure he does. That's what he, that's, that's all he wants. Well, when you think about it, that is a fabulous thing. Uh, Honey, I'm, honey, I'm on my way to the club. I'm (laughs) going to see Richard Weimar. What a bad impression but but no uh, but uh, he wouldn't want to be there if that were the case but but no it's like there was a there was a thing to show business and the thing that was is it it was a community affair and it was a community affair and you'd socialize with people and the way it is now you know you don't none of the stuff that they had about the congregating and the socializing and the being around other people Mm -hmm. do we have in this in this time, we you know it's very rare. That's why right. I, I was chairman of membership of the, of the Friars Club for three years. Oh, were you here in Los Angeles? Here in Los Angeles before it got disbanded or disbarred or just dis- something. It should and, it, and and I'm sorry the building was torn down, but it, I sat on what happened is they mismanaged their money and their funds, and then what happened is they had to take in people who were not in show business. Oh. So Richard Lewis wanted to join, and they didn't know who he was. Yikes. Uh, uh, Nick at night, we did a promotion with them. They thought that Nick was a guy. Uh-oh. I'm not making this up. Wow. Uh, and you'd go to these board meetings. It was like a sketch. There'd be like eight 80-year-old men sitting yeah. there with white hair, and they'd tell a story. I'd say, we should really have programs for three generations here. We should do some different <laughs> shows, and we're going to do some stuff, and it's going to be great. And I talked to Jeff Garland. He's going to join, and all these right, people right. are joining. And, they, and the guy would stand up. He'd say, I have something to say. I came here on Sunday for brunch with my wife, as I normally do. Hmm. And the waiter took his fingers and put them in my glass. And then he'd sit down. 
Wow. <laughs> and, that would be, and that would be my experience for three years. Oh, my God. That is – see, and granted, those things aren't real either. I mean, they, they exist. I mean, the, the sort of the, the – what, what you want, the party that you want to go to, that does exist. I, I do believe. And it exists to this day. And I think George Clooney throws them. Probably, But yeah. the, the – I don't think that they existed – like, if you think about Singing in the Rain, the scene after the movie – and then they go to the party where they show another movie. Yeah. Right. So um, that kind of party also exists here, I believe. And I don't want to go to that party. Well, you know, that's too much. Pre- that's too much pressure and that's too much too craziness. Much. There's a lot of a lot of tangoing. And there's I mean, I don't know that the tango's still happening, but the, I bet you there's a lot of people wearing jeans that they've never washed. You yeah. know, those jeans that you put in the fridge. I was just told about that. Mark Marin told me about it. Andy Wood told me about them. There's a new men's uh, jean. Yes. That you always wear. And, you, you know, you, you put your oils on it. You wipe your hands on it and you never wash them. And if they ever smell, you put them in the freezer. To kill the bacteria, but you, you never wash. Them. You know what? I uh, now that I know that I'm actually going to move <laughs> into the freezer because why should I wash anything? It's too much effort. Um, uh, if you're drained. There's a lot of stress, and the best way to do it is cool it down. <laughs> that's that's it. Do a cool down. <laughs> Let's. Uh, wh- that's very funny. Ooh, don't you think? What's his name? Uh, uh, not Carl Rove. Vice president used to be vice president. Yeah. Uh, he had a name. Cheney. 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 Mm-hmm. Man size. Uh, man size. Vault. Yeah. That he had safe, man-sized fridge. That's what I want. I don't blame you. You know what? Now that I think of it, it really would be great, and it would it would bring you <laughs> to life. It would be, you know, you'd be awake and alert and focused, and it's very important to have those qualities for this day and age. But for me, I want to do that half the time. The other half of the time, I want to be at the Copacabana. Right. So time travel. Yeah, I want to time travel. Would be... Man, it, I mean, granted, I've heard comics do jokes about how you cannot be a black man in time travel. It is not okay. It isn't fun. It isn't, uh, it's a negative experience. Yeah, no matter where you go, you're, yeah. Right, or, you're, or a Jew at certain times. Right. If it, Yes, being Jewish or a woman. Or a woman. Um, right. But if you are a white man, time travel really is for you. You know what I would do is I go in the freezer and I just paint myself white. You know what? Once time travel is invented, why will not cloaking devices be invented where you can look like a white man? Wow, that is great. And then we can't, then when they, there can be no prejudice, there can be no racism, there can be no sense of struggle because you can be, you know who'll be the, the queen of the whole uh, village? Will be uh, the woman who sings I'm Every Woman. <laughs> Uh, Anita, whoever that is. Anita, Anita Baker. Bryant. Anita, Anita ba- Baker. Anita Bryant and, and Anita Baker. Let me tell you something about Anita Baker. I opened for her, called her Anita Bryant when I was on stage. Oh. Uh, you know what I am? Fantastic. Not always there. Not entirely. Uh, Anita Baker, wonderful, wonderful singer. Luckily, she never heard. Her manager heard me. Uh, oh, what and, did he say? Uh, there was a hairy eyeball. I received one hairy eyeball and uh, immediately realized my mistake because I was just doing stand-up before her uh, at uh, in, in downtown Minneapolis at a very large, the State Theater. Oh, and it was beautiful. And it was essentially like, did you ever see um, White Man's Burden with John Travolta? I did. And all of the great actors of the black actors of our age. And um, it was like that. It was like going into... Uh, essentially a, a wealthy black man's world mm. because everybody in the audience was incredibly, you know, at least upper middle class or affluent black people coming to see Anita Baker. Sure. And I was doing my stand-up comedy, uh, which was well received. They're a polite bunch of people going, well, she seems nice. Let's yeah. listen to her. And then my jokes are funny enough. Once you get past the fact that I am obviously a white woman. 
and uh and without then, a cloaking device without a cloaking device yeah. i would use one i yeah. would have used one that night yeah but i wonder That's if i would have what kind what kind of black comic would i have turned myself into you know what it would have just me it would have just been me aaron jackson is what I would be as a, a black woman. I don't know if you know her her work. I don't know Erin, but I'd like to know her. She is a she's a from uh, I believe the D.C. area. I never get to talk to her. Baltimore, maybe. Okay. And um, uh, but she was on my last comic standing. It's a fascinating story. Why don't I uh, get back to you? Which is uh, good stuff. No, no, no. I mean, I I like this. I like this whole thing. You know, I mean, as, as com- you're often in a situation where. Uh, you feel like you're not supposed to be there, or you should be another place. There, somewhere there's another show going on that you belong at, <laughs> but you're not at that show now. But then maybe right. that show will be coming as, right. as soon if you can survive this show. Right. Um, and that is uh, that is a strange uh, way to live, um, and it is a strange kind of. I mean, I guess if you do it enough, you do it so much that you become comfortable with discomfort. Right. You're uh, sort of in it. It's yeah, like it's yeah, a fish it's, in that kind of water. Yeah, it happens. And I don't want to be it. You know what? That is an excellent point because that is, that's the game. I, I know comics or people just in Los Angeles is, is thick with them, though they exist in, in any culture of the people who want to play the game. I'm worse than you or I'm more depressed than you sure. or I, my career is not going as well as yours is or it's the feel sorry for me game. Um, yeah. is what it really is. Well, but now it, you're talking to a Jew. So basically, you know, we're yeah. gonna, we're the champs of it's, that. Are you good at it? Well, we, you wear comparison. As a peoples, <laughs> we are. We are good at that as what a people. What are the Armenians good at? Cheese. Uh, cheese? Wonderful cheese. Do we make good cheese? I know Fantastic. we do a, an excellent, uh. The best cheese. Everybody has a car with four wheels. It's cheese. No, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but it's supposed <laughs> to be very good. And passion. They're very, you're a passionate people. You care. About things. See, I think of us as more of a sort of a sales-oriented uh, people. Well, no, I, I mean, but sales is a very important. I mean, that's the key to America. It, it is. Uh, America is an idea. It is that. It yeah. is my religion. It's a good religion to practice, but we have this the Constitution, thing. the Declaration of Independence. Those are those are my documents. Well, those are my. We have something called life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's true. Have you noticed that it's the pursuit? Of happiness. Yes. Have you noticed that it's not happiness? Right. Happiness is not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. And you know what will make you less happy than anything in this world? What? Pursuing happiness. Uh-huh. Makes you very unhappy. Because you're trying to pursue something that's outside you, that's already inside you. So how could you get it from the outside? If it's already inside. Oh. So that's a real inherent problem with the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness model. Right. It's like, you're like, you've like blown my mind here. It's like, what you've done is you've taken a, a story from my scripture, which is like saying, <laughs> you remember when Job was sleeping with his girls? And uh, you're like, yeah. no, no, <laughs> don't, I don't actually think about that. One. But you're right. It's the pursuit of, because you're a, a bit of a happiness dork in the way. I'm a happiness dork in that, in that I, you know, no one is a worse enemy to themselves than their, their own self. You know, nobody can hold you back more than you can. True. Or let you go forward more than you can. Mm-hmm. And and so with with that in mind, I learned some habits that kept me from being happy for a very long time. And I'm not going to say that I'm that I'm happy now. I think that uh, you know that happiness, whatever that is, you think of like why? Because I'm I'm older now, and I'm thinking. Why do I do all these things? Why do you do anything in your life? Right. And and I think for me, why? I want to be happy and okay. I want to be free. Okay. You're always thinking, you know, 
how can I live so I don't have anything over my head? I just want to take a walk in my neighborhood. Right. I don't want to, I want to be present. Yep. I don't want to have to worry about money. Right. Uh, I want to be able to go where I want and do what I want to do. Right. Okay. So everything I do is an effort to get to that place. And that was always the, the goal. So that, so the pursuit right. of what I would call happiness for me. Right. Why not? Why isn't the goal just being happy and free then? Yeah, why Why isn't that the goal? Okay. Instead of, let me get my own show, let me sell a thing, let me do a thing. These are steps on the way because you want to be that, which is over, which you feel is outside of you. So, like those monks that wander in India. Yeah. um, Those guys do go for a walk. Yeah. And they, when they're hungry, stop and ask someone for some food. And, uh, And they are essentially... I mean, because cause we, we do. We worry about our 401ks. I don't have one. I have uh, $387 in the bank just in case everyone wants to go to lunch. You know what? Uh, yeah. That's you're ahead of me. And, and I'll tell you something. Uh, I will put in my 50 cents and it can be three hundred eighty-seven fifty. Sure. And then we go and then you go. You have maybe you have an extra an extra French fry. That's it. But, We're, we... but no, it, it, it is. Um, the thing is, I think you can have I think you can have both. You know, I think you can, I think you can be of this world and still uh, be contented and be happy. But I think we live in such a crazy, we have so much stimulus around us, so much stuff going on, so much media. Right. You know, when you're not happy inside, you want to fill yourself up with other things. True. So. Maria Bamford, I think, put it best when she said, the whole inside of me is not comedy shaped. Good for her. Yeah. I love Maria. She's great. She's great. But the, there's, I mean, and it, the thing is, is you keep thinking the next show and, and the only way to, I mean, whenever you have, whenever I have, let's talk about me, whenever I have a bad show, the only thing that can fix a bad show is a good show. Right. Like a good day for some reason cannot fix a bad show. Right. But a bad day can be fixed by a good show. Which is weird. Well, no, I totally understand that. You know, you're on the road. You've got these shows night after night. You had a bad one last night. Right. And then the day is not going to be good. The day is the, the the day you sit around thinking, well, what did I do wrong? How can I fix it tonight? How can I fix it tonight? And how can I control it? Because right. I'm in control of it. Right. Which is another big uh, stumbling block to happiness, which is the idea that you can actually control things. Right. Because... You can't really control. I mean, if you could, I'd be the king of, of the world. Right. I mean, I've been I've been trying to control everything since I was a baby. I remember growing up and, you know, uh, just trying to control everything. I need my own cloaking device. Right. To- I am a bit of a bossy magoo myself. And I just I think that I you know what I call it being a helper. Yeah. Because I want to help you. Yeah. It's not enough that. I'm, you know, and I, my life is not perfect. You know, you would think that why would I have the answer to your, clearly I do have the answer to your problem. (laughs) It's so much, it's so much easier. It's, it is so much easier. And also if you get points for that as a kid, fixing things. Sure. Then you're going to go do that. My mother used to say, don't help unless you're asked. And when you're asked, do it right. Well, that's it was wonderful. not supportive. It was not entirely supportive, but it was it was just like whenever you're a kid, you're wandering around and you're like, I'm going to help you and yeah. I'm going to grab this thing. And she's like, that's actually not helpful. That's so, interesting. OK, OK, but do it right. So oh, there is then, a right way to do it. There is a right way to do it. And and much like, you know, Anthony Bourdain, he would like you 
to chop the vegetables in a certain way. My mother would like you to chop the vegetables. And if you didn't? And if you didn't, then you hadn't done them correctly, and she would ask you to do them again. Please do the vegetables again. Uh, you have cut them in a diagonal shape. I don't know what it means. I don't want to know what it means. <laughs> right. Just cut them again. Right. I need you to cut them in half because I need squares. But she just, would say it in that tone. In that tone. It was just like, and it was, you know, like we had to clean the house. And my my sister and my brothers all realized very quickly that if she only checked the corners. Yeah. Like if, because, and me, I... She was like, you got to do all the baseboards. You got to make sure and then get down on your hands and knees and make it all. And so I would make sure it was perfect. And then at the end of it, she would only check the corners. And I never noticed until ooh, until my sister told me. I think I was 27. So now you learn these tricks. And that's the beauty of siblings is right. they keep it from you. But then they'll spring it on you. Right. And then you have a free gift. Right. Are, are you a sibling? I am a sibling. Uh, I'm actually a sibling rivalry. I have it with myself. But I but I uh, I have an evil twin who's parked in the car right now. Actually, um, window cracked? Bowl of water? Kind of. Okay. Um, <laughs> but so so I have an older sister who uh, is seven, seven years older. And my sister uh, is just the greatest actress in the world. I mean, she's a great stage actress. Uh, not, I will I will put her in the notes. Oh, she's amazing. What is her name? Her name is Rochelle Krasnick. All uh, right. and, but she's a great stage actress. You know, could read from a paper like a, a Neil Simon, could read something from Neil Simon and make you cry from right. a paper. Wow. And so, uh, but she's amazing. But when I was a kid, my best friend Jimmy Lane and I, who runs Emerson College now, all oh, kinds well. of plugs. Right, um, right. He, uh, a great guy, and as little kids, we were like brothers. My sister would be rehearsing her plays inside her room, which was Beetle Heaven. Okay. And with the door closed, and she'd be rehearsing No Exit, a Sartre play, and she'd be, what's that? It's 12 o'clock noon, and the sun is shining. I must be going blind. And so she'd she'd come out of her room, and then there we are like jerks. Right. And we looked at her, and uh, my mother says, what are you guys up to? Well, I don't know about you, but it's 12 o'clock noon, and the sun, I must be going blind. You know, so that's the kind of... House. That's the kind of support that uh, that she, she had to deal with. Yeah, she had but, to deal with. But that. you were a younger brother, and uh, how yeah. how old was she when she was rehearsing? Like fifteen? Uh, yeah, 16? like fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. So yeah. you were an eight year old little jackass. I was and, a jackass. I mean, and 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 and, and, but and you it, can't expect much more from an eight year old. Right. Except I also had this other thing where I, you know, where I was helpful. Right. Okay. Uh, where I knew, you know, my mother was uh, a typical overburdened, uh, you know, Jewish housewife, and she was uh, didn't know East how to Coast, set limits. Boston? East Coast, okay. uh, Boston, Massachusetts, Dorchester. Here's how I'll frame it for you. Remember Goodwill Hunting when uh, Ben Affleck goes to pick up Matt Damon every day? Yep. And you see a house. Mm-hmm. That's where I lived. Okay. <laughs> I actually lived in that room. Okay. That's where I lived. My mother. We lived on the bottom, uh, the middle floor. My grandfather owned it. He lived in the bottom. My uncle lived in the top. It was like an emotional parfait. Oh my gosh, That's, that is nice. That, yeah. The emotions <laughs> ran up and down. Right. And so and so uh, so basically, yeah. I mean. Uh, grew up not knowing how to say no. Okay. Not knowing how to set limits. Not knowing that I thought every time I had a feeling I was bad. Ah. Oh. And I mean any kind of I An- mean, anything. Could be happiness. Anything. Yeah. What, what's wrong with me now? And oh. so, so I because uh, you were supposed to be on an even keel all the time. Well, you just don't have. You don't want to need anything. Okay. <laughs> there was a rule in the house. Right. And the rule was no living. As long as you were not living. You could be a, a working member of the family. We had a no living room. Excellent. Now, as long as you're not living, that's that's the, the main. And was living defined by needing something? 
Uh, yes, because if you did, then you had pushed it over. Now, but but as a kid, comedy, I mean, classic story. Okay. I see my mother. She's overburdened. I'm five years old. And all of a sudden, I think she's in trouble. So I do the man on the street interview. So I go over and I say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm five years old. It's Shirley Krasick. She looks like she's upset about something. Let's go in and find out what it is. It looks like it might have something to do with her husband. Five years old. And verbatim. So, verbatim. To, to, wow. Absolutely. So I knew, you know, I equate myself to the plate spinner on the Ed Sullivan show because I was spinning people not wanting to let them fall. Right. So, so you know, growing up like that, that's a long time ago. Right. But this does fit back, circle back into happiness because um, what happens is you start, pra- I, I practice these habits. Right. They're habits. They become completely, it's myth and legend that solidifies. And-, and it's based on one thing. I'm trying to get a need met. I'm trying to take care of myself. I don't know how to do it. Right. So... I always needed these like little tips of like, you know, I needed like somebody to be standing next to me saying, oh, you know, every time you have a feeling, it doesn't make you bad. Oh, every time you need something, it doesn't make you bad. Oh, every time uh, if you do need something, you can just ask for it. You know, if you and if you feel whatever you feel, it passes. You don't have to hold on to it and it doesn't have to control your life and you don't have to depress it with food. Right. So so there are simple things that you can learn. Right. But you have to learn them. You have to learn them, but and no, you didn't but, learn them from the the home life. I didn't learn now. Now I want I want to say my mother was brilliant and compassionate and a wonderful person. As was my whole family. They were wonderful. They didn't necessarily know how to take care of themselves, right? But they were the most. Oh, that's one- the pattern, right? I mean, you're just like you you have to sort of break the circle yourself because while they were good at what they did well, they were not good at what they did not do well. And so you have to fill in those holes yourself as an adult. Yeah, you fill them in, but you keep living as you lived and you live it out even though you're not living at home. Right. And so now what might have worked in the family doesn't really work at Syracuse University. It doesn't work at other places. Now, did you redefine yourself at college? Did you, I mean, because you know when you move away, yeah, you get to. Well, uh, they didn't think I was going to make it at college, and, and I slept on park benches. I didn't know who I was. I was just, you know, having, you a, didn't having have a tough time. I did, but I was, you know, I, I didn't unpack my bag for like six months at school because I was so used to being enmeshed in my own family that once I was taken out of that, I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know how to take care, and I didn't know. So I kind of freaked out a little bit, you know. Right. And, uh, that is a supportive family. To yeah. some extent, I mean, it... It paralyzed you a little bit, but just to think of the nurturing that that created, like knowing that you had somewhere to go back to, you know, that's the way I took care of my, I mean, that's, that's what I did. And, you know, uh, and so the long, you know, the long story short, I mean, I was, I was at Syracuse university, my parents, my family, I saw a therapist there who spoke like this. I think, uh, I believe you're lying to yourself sort of thing. <laughs> and I think I, th- I think you know when you're ready to make a choice, sort of thing. And uh, so he was from Oklahoma, and wow. that's when I learned that Oklahoma is not necessarily okay. <laughs> and, and and so so my fun- that guy's not your best example of Oklahoma. No, it's what, your- what you learned out. You know, right I-, I couldn't even watch the movie for years or see the music. <laughs> Anytime the musical came on, it was no good. You thought Judd? That's who my therapist was. It was Judd. Judd. <laughs> good name for that guy. Uh, so the bottom line is that is that I had therapy, and we did this thing where they reunite families who aren't living in the same region, and they do these marriages marathon family therapy sessions and they filmed them these were the, this was like albert brooks's real life they filmed it Intr- and and then we had to watch it and you look at the outtakes from your own family 
And, and this is a classic American story with the only way that I can actually heal myself is if I'm on a reality TV show. Exactly. Kind yeah, of. In those days, that wasn't. That's, we didn't know what it was. You didn't, you didn't have a name for it because yeah. it was before Albert Brooks's real life. <laughs> yeah. But the American vet. But right, right. That's where it was. And, uh, and you know, my parents are sitting there. Anyway, the, the, I had to go back to Boston to pick my family up and then drive them through a blinding snowstorm, knowing that what was waiting for us was seven-hour marathon family therapy sessions with wow. a camera. So today, as I'm talking to you, somewhere in upstate New York, there's a Hutching Psychiatric Institute, and they're looking at a film. And the guy is standing there with a white coat on, and he's saying, whatever you do, don't be this guy. Stay away from this girl. This lady is crazy. And so we, we did help uh, humanity in some way. <laughs> this all comes around, and, and this is what it is. I learned that half my life has been comedy, and the other half has been self-help. Okay. Or therapy. So I started doing shows and creating stuff that united self-help and comedy. And I feel like it's the perfect thing. And like, when did you start doing that? Like about two years ago. Okay. I was creating all this other stuff for other people. And I thought to myself, you know what? One day it just occurred to me, all this stuff that you're creating can be boiled down into two things. You got self-help stuff and you got comedy. Right. So how can you put them together? Right. So I started doing what I would call self-help comedy, and it really, it was uniting actual therapy techniques, not like the marriage ref and stuff like that, but real techniques right. with really sharp humor, with sharp humor. Yeah. And what I did was a show called Acting Out, and the show was, it, it, it's a show that you, that unites those two things. Uh, guests come on, they talk about personal real life issues. Mm -hmm. And then along with the therapist. Did, wait, is this the show I did? No, 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 I just did your video. Um, you did the podcast. I did your video podcast. Right. Yeah. I had a, I had a lovely well, time. You were so, pro you were great. You were so professional. Nobody's professional these days, but you were amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And, and What's it, the name of it again? So the, can... the name is called acting out. And, and what it is, is it's guests. They talk about real life issues. And then along with a therapist and a panel of comedic actors, Oh, they work through the issue. They actually act it out. So it's therapeutic role play. Right. But the, you essentially have an improv troupe acting out. Real life issues of the guest and and themselves. Interesting. And so what I and and I'll give you an example of what it is. A guest came on and she, it's an actress and she said, you know, I said, what's going on with you? How are you doing? And she said, you know, I don't get along with my mother. I just hate her. And I said, well, how's that going to change? How's that going to resolve? She said, in a funeral home. So there's ah. a, the therapist is listening and the mm -hmm, panel is there mm -hmm. and he says, well, this is great. This is your lucky day because. This is a funeral home, and I'm going to ask one of our panelists, Moon Zappa, to come over and lay down and be your mom in the grave, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. now you get to do the eulogy. Now, these are funny people. Right. Crying tears are pouring down now. Right. Tears are coming down. Jimmy Pardo is on the panel. He looks over. He sees the way Moon Zappa is laying down. And right. And he says... Why is Moon laying down like she's a guest star on CSI Miami? Why, why is, who lays down in a grave? So now the audience is roaring with laughter. Right. Over the next 10 minutes, this woman is going to play her mother. She's mm -hmm. going to play herself as a little kid. Mm -hmm. And by the end of 10 minutes, she's going to be at a different place in the relationship with her mom. And her mom isn't there. Right. So that's what the show is. Wow. It, it is the uniting of humor and emotion. So she does. So in this case, she's. At, at one point, she is she's where Moon's apple was, where she's lying in 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 the coffin. Yeah. At one point, she is acting out herself as a child. Yes. And, and she's also doing the eulogy for her mother. Yes, and she's acting out as her mother, talking to her. 
as a kid. As a kid. Okay, so both her and her mother. Yeah, and then the other people child. the other people on the panel <clears throat> are being different people in her life and reacting to it. Yeah. As well. And also bringing comedy to it. Right. Well, I mean, if you put uh, Jimmy Pardo yeah. into something, yeah. uh, you uh, have comedy. And then you and then you see parts of people that you didn't think they had, which which, you know, other sides. I mean, these people are That's got to be really healing, too. It's amazing. No one like wants cathartic. to No one wants to leave. Everybody is it's electric and nobody wants to leave because they've had more than one emotion at a time. Wow. And it's totally alive and it really does come out of my life. This really has been my life experience. And it's a live stage theater. It's, it's a live, it's stage, a live stage show that is being pitched as a TV show. Wow. <clears throat> I don't know how that would go as a TV show, though, just because it's so painful. Well, the thing is that the humor... You can really... put it on own and no one would watch it. Aww. Nah, that's but true. But hopefully a giant bag of money. Nah, no, no, <laughs> no, but it, it really... The thing is, the, I call it acting out because there's a panel there. Right. So there's a guest chair on that panel. Right. Let's say that we talk about parenting. Just for an example, just for, for giggles, right? And Reese Witherspoon is a guest. Right. She's talking about being a parent. She doesn't have to do a role play. What she does is we have a viewer come in who mm -hmm. has an issue with their teenage son. Reese Witherspoon has been talking about parenting. She moves over to join our panel mm -hmm. and uses her acting skills to actually help somebody get through an issue in their life. So this is why it's called acting out. Right. This is why you could see it on IFC or AMC right. or someplace I'd like that. I'd be great on IFC. Um, and, you know, so there's different applications. We, yeah. The goal is to help people learn this these very simple techniques, which anyone can use, which will change your life, and they're free. Right. That's the goal. I think it's fascinating. I don't know that anyone could do it. I think that you would need people that had done a lot of... Have you ever seen a show called ASCAT? Uh, Upright Citizens Brigade? Yes, yes. Where uh, somebody tells a story, and then an improv troupe, a long-form improv troupe, acts out that story, and yeah. then it morphs into something else. Yeah. So it's like that, but with no results. Right. So ASCAT is essentially acting out, but with no point or purpose or goal arc. R right. Here you're guided by a... An actual therapist. A 40-year experience, uh, you know, a guy who's a role-play expert. They call it psychodrama. Okay. But I hate to use that. It's the worst term for anything I've ever heard. What do you hear? Psycho. Right. Sick drama. Hey, I'm pitching a show called Sick Drama. Yeah. And and it it's gimmick. If it sounds gimmicky when you say psychodrama. Yeah, when weird. you say acting out, you just get okay, because I know that comedy can heal. I know it. And I mean it sounds because there's a lot of pretension where people are like, we shouldn't, you know, there's there's two camps that have been around since 1984, since I started doing stand-up comedy. Sure. And they're the people that are like, comedy's art, man. It's art. And the other camp, which is, if people make them laugh, it doesn't matter if that guy just pooped in his hand and whipped it in the audience. Right. And you're like... I, were, I open for that guy. <laughs> that guy's great. Did he did he bring a, an audience member up to put other other hands behind him? He did, and then he wore vacuum cleaner bag pants, and they started to inflate, and then the finale was the explosion. And I'm not kidding. Um, and, that's just good writing. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. But but no, I mean, the thing that's interesting now to me about what Paul Prevenz is doing and what you're that starting to see thing, in media yeah. uh, and the green room on Showtime. Oh, in the green room. What you're starting to see is you're starting to see, oh, comics are not only are they funny, but they have other stuff that they right. do that's going on. Right. And when they talk about that and then they're funny, oh, my God, it's well, like a full meal. Right. And, and watching Richard Belzer on Law & Order. 
you don't know when he's going to be funny because he's just a funny man. Right. So he's playing a very serious role, but it's more like real life when a comic plays us. And this is, again, I love comics. So I'm just talking about how great we are. And we're great. And Richard Belzer in Law and Order is, it's more like real life. Yeah, it's more like, and it's a complete, uh, you get a complete picture. And so the idea that you could be a comedic person. Yeah. And actually on, on acting out, the panel not only gets to act and gets to help somebody and use their sense of humor, they get to talk about how they really felt and how they relate to the issue in their right. real life. Right, right. Which you never get to do. So it's very, so that's why I say Jimmy Pardo, I heard things I've never heard from him. Yeah. In that setting. Oh, I bet. And it was fantastic. Just, yeah, because he doesn't talk about his personal life so much, ever. No, but he but he really helped somebody by giving them feedback that was very from interesting. the heart, from the and, heart. Yeah, just real human being stuff. Well, and I'll tell you, I wrote uh, my uh, a solo show, much much like a psycho drama. Uh huh. The words one woman show, not something you want to say out loud. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, yeah. so but I had a solo show called Salesmen and Thieves, and it was about my dad and my uncle and 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 my great my great uncle and my brothers, yeah. and. My dad is a very polarizing person in our lives. In my, I have four brothers and a sister, and he is the kind of guy who, and I'll tell my my brother Phil said that he was he was talking to him about a, a couple of weeks ago, and my dad said, "Hey, I talked to Darla, my sister, and uh, the other day." And Phil goes, "Oh, she took your call," and my dad goes, "What is she mad at me?" And Phil goes, "Well, you've never met her her youngest child, and you don't really care about her kids." And my dad goes. He pauses and he says, does she know that I don't care about any of your children? And we laugh because you, it's hilarious, but he's, and he's right. He doesn't, he doesn't, he has 14 grandchildren. He has met most of them and he has three great grandchildren who he's never met. And so he is a polar, I mean, he doesn't really care. And he doesn't not care. Like if you wanted what we, what Darla did with her oldest girl is she said, Hey, I'm going to go to Milwaukee because my stepmother doesn't care either. She pretends to care, but she doesn't really. And, um, but because has never made any effort. That is how we know. <laughs> and, but Darla was like, Hey, I need to go do the Lion King thing with my baby girl, Noah. And, uh, I was like, what's the Lion King? She's like, you know, I'm just going to go show them the kid and then. <laughs> You know, just sort of present like Simba. That's very and funny. And then, um, and then I will have done my part. My side of the street will be clean. And, uh, and then Noah will not see her grandparents for the first time at their funeral. And I was like, fair enough. She said, I will pay you if you come with me. And cause my family, money's a big deal. And I said, obviously you do not have to pay me to go with you with Noah. I will go with you. And she's like, thank you. And so we went together. And so I called my dad and I called my brother who lives there and I said, Darla is going to come and do the Lion King thing with Noah at you. And I explained what the Lion King thing was. And my dad laughed and he goes, okay. And I said, and we're all going to, we're all going to keep it together. We're all going to be there for her and we're all going to be nice. And my dad goes, okay. All right. Cause my dad will, you just have to spell it out. He has no social skills and bottom line, bottom line. When I called and told him that Noah was born, he was like, okay. And then never, nobody called. Nobody called Darla to congratulate her. So I had to call him back and go, hey, I didn't know I had to talk you through the social situation of your daughter having a, a grandchild. Uh, you're supposed to call her. You're supposed to send a card with like a five spot in it. Um, anything? And he was like, oh, shit. So it, he didn't even think of it. But wait a minute. Let me back up. He's a salesman and he's a very good one. Yes. 
Okay, if you're a salesman, don't you send cards to your clients saying, he "Hey, not. Bob." He doesn't do that. Stuff. He doesn't do. He okay. doesn't do. His follow up is all in either in person. My father will not leave South Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on purpose. Uh, he huh? uh, he does like a long drive. He will take a drive. He'll go down uh, to talk to our cousin Morad. Morad Jengosian, who we called Uncle Moron, and his children called my dad Uncle Idiot, because his name's Elliot. We're we're a close family. I love it. <laughs> I love Uncle Morad. My he's my favorite. This is you talk yeah. about a sitcom. Wow. Yeah, Uncle Morad is uh he's he's got probably eleven million dollars, and he his children were raised in thrift clothing, and uh, they live. He's a very very frugal gentleman. Let's put that put it put it nicely. You would have had to pay him to go to the Lion King ceremony. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. He, I, I have no idea whether he's met his grandchild. But the fact that you have, you have a unique relationship with your dad—that's what I'm getting. You are the one to call him to say, "I don't know if you know this," which, which presumes that that there isn't anybody else in the family who does that. Nobody else does that. Okay, it so that's true. your role. That is my role. Right. My role is that I am, I am the. Uh, the enabler, the communicator, the hub. Right. Everybody is like, I'm going to tell you this thing because eventually it'll get back to our parents or one of our other siblings. Right. Because I'm not going to call him. So I'm not going to call <laughs> Like, everybody wants to know that our stepmother is, is doing well. Nobody is willing to talk to her. Well, it's a very weighted <laughs> game of telephone. This is what you're doing. You're playing a childhood game. It's telephone. And hoping that the communication gets through. Right. And I... And I do soften most of the blows. And, but when I wrote the solo show, I guess is what I'm saying is that I, it took me over a year to write this show. 30 minutes, super tight, incredibly. It's a, it's, it's a good show. It was well received, critically acclaimed, quite honestly. And, and edited really, really well by Joe Wilson and directed well by him. Um, and he, what happened is, 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 I was, as I wrote it, all of my anger towards my dad came out and I had to find the way to make it funny and accessible. And to do that was to find how I love him still. Right. I mean, that's the only way that that's you can really, because I mean, if I got up and ranted about how much <laughs> my father, he's a dick is what it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, these are the terrible things he does. And my punchline is, is he's a dick. Minute one. And minute 29 more to go. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of comedy there. Then there's no right. redemption and there's no arc right. and the redemption. And for me, what I'm looking for is, is me like okay. to fix me. I can't fix him. Right. So I have to find why I still talk to him, why I still like him, why I'm still willing to ignore. I mean, he's the only father I've got, obviously. Right. Right. So I have to, you know, you have to sort of okay it. My brother Phil for many years angry that they never played catch. I mean, it was something out of a out, out of a, a a bad movie. A bad movie, bad seventies yeah. movie. Well, all right. So, so what's so that's the stage. That's the one, solo show, right? And oh, but the point but, of the but whole what's thing. What's the life show? Yeah, go ahead. But the point of the thing was that once my brother and sister saw me do that show, they softened. It was like I had made that journey, and it helped them right. to some extent. And I sent a copy of it to my father because I believe uh, that all people deserve rebuttal time. Okay. And uh, he was good about it, and uh, he took it very well. Well, and, and, and so you're making a story. Now, I, I did a solo show, but you're making, you make the story to make it into a story that has a beginning, middle, and end. There, right. Like you said, there's an arc. 
There's a redemption. There's a yeah. What does that look like? What is now? I'm being a therapist, but really, well, the, what, is, what does it look into... like? What does it look like? What is the real story? Like, what is the, what would the redemption be for you with your dad? What happens? What oh what what happens? What would happen for him? What happens now is is the way it is now, which is I'm perfectly fine with how it is. I mean, I call him when he does things that are not thoughtful. Right. I call him on it, right. and then he goes, "Oh shit." Or he says, yeah, I still don't care. I'm not doing that. And I have to accept that. And so I sort of just let it go. I'm like, okay, well, I've done my part to try to make him care that she had another kid. And he still doesn't. And But it's not going to be like doing a bad set and you have to do another set. Like, how, It's not going oh. to affect you in the way we're like, okay, I'm not going to live today. Oh, right. It isn't like comedy. My family is not like comedy. It's... I, (laughs) this is entirely about me now, but um, the thing is, is, is I'm so dipped in, I'm not as dipped in my family. Like I don't, as I am in, I get more of my self-esteem from stand-up comedy than I do from my family. Right. Right. That's what it turns out. (laughs) Sure. This, this is now your family. Yeah. This, this profession and this craft. It matters more to me if I have a good or bad set than Mm. it does if my brother Phil is mad at me. Or my brother Terry is mad at me. Um, interesting. Interesting. Nice revelation. Nice work. I don't know. You know, I'm sitting here. I've got, I'm doing needlepoint and I <laughs> thought I would mention something. No, but I, I, you know, I, it's, um, this is what I'm talking, you know, this is what I'm talking about. It's like you, you have a very interesting story. There's an interesting story. You did a show about it. I sure, know. Sure. But, you don't usually see this kind of story in media. You're not right. going to go on CNN. You're not going to go on a show and be interviewed as a comedian, and then you're going to talk about your family seriously, At and then there'll be some funny thing. Yeah, well, then, and then there'll be something funny, too. Right. And that's what I'm trying to get. In media, I want to create stuff that unites these two worlds, the humor and emotion. And that, because it's fascinating. It's fascinating, and it's it's. It makes you live. It, it, it is a firecracker for your life. Yeah. And you come to life. People come to our show and like all of a sudden they come in dragging like anybody would from this world. Right. And then by the end of the show, they have complete energy. Why? Because their emotions have been holding them down. They're carrying all this crap. And when they have any release at all, they're fully alive. They're not tired anymore. Right. That's what you're meant to be. That's what television, you know, that's why I thought television was meant to be live. It was a box where you spoke into something and in your living room, you saw it happening as it happened. Right. There was a human being there and they made mistakes, just like, you know, what I'm talking about, which is you need to see in media people who are themselves, even though there are cameras around them and there's somebody crazy trying to control it. If you saw one show like that. Where that, that, that showed people over and over again moving from completely controlled to opened up. Right. It would be like, oh, everything that I've been doing in my life, all the control, all the crap, I actually don't need to do it. And it's actually the reverse. If I let go and if I stop trying to control and I just let these things pass through, I'm a free person and I'm not worried about the future or the past because I'm free and I'm present. Even if it's in a moment. Yeah, and it, and it, and it's as much of a moment. It's like, 
Yeah. Whenever you hear somebody tell something real about their lives and then you're like, oh my God, that's what I've been waiting for. I mean, that it, it totally is that. That's why storytelling shows are so popular, I think, is because there's there's so much from the heart where you're like, that resonates with me. And it releases something inside you that even if it's only an instant, that that it takes away a brick that's blocking something, I think. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. And, and you know, and then when it's funny. Yeah. It then it's re- fun. It re- well, it really <laughs> is laughing. I mean, it really, yeah. it really is the, the, the both sides, you know, it's, it's both sides now. And, you know, I know there's been a lot of, uh, you know, explanation and stuff, but I did a solo show and I'll tell you that I had a backers audition. We were going to put it on a uh, Broadway and I had a backers audition and I was staying in the producer's house and I had this thing where my mother, like your dad is a big part of the show. My mom was a big part of the show. And, uh, I had a lot of feelings about my mom and the coach, the acting person said, you can't do this show because your mom is not accessible to you unless you're willing to have all kinds of feelings about her. Yeah. And so I had to practice this thing and I had to do these warm ups, which is insane that you'd have to do that. But I had to do these warm ups, but I did it in a closet because I didn't want it was loud and I didn't want anybody to hear. Right. So the audience is sitting in a theater in Greenwich Village. It's like I got like an hour to show time now. I can walk. Right. And I closed <clears throat> the closet door and I started doing my stuff and the door locked. Whoa. <laughs> and now you've got an audience that's sitting there waiting and the door is locked. And I'm terrified. <laughs> and I'm pounding on the door. Right. And I'm going crazy with the door. And after about 20 minutes, it did open. But right. it was 20 minutes of I'm dead. Right. And so I go down to the theater and I start to do uh, the show and the air conditioning is broken. And it's wow. the summertime. Right. And it's New York. And everybody is out in that audience. Yeah. Uh, Woody Allen's company is there. They're all, you name, Herb all Alpert, the all the backers are there. And I look out halfway at, at, and I see Marshall Brickman, who co wrote Annie Hall. Right. And I see him and he's sitting there, and Marshall Brickman's head is on fire. He's, his head, it's so hot in that theater that his head is swiveling and I look and all I can see is a flame. And so I'm doing a good show. Right. But I'm doing a good show in hell. Right. Um, and, and so, so, uh, anyway, this intersection of, you know, like all of these weird humor, you know, humor and emotion in the show, I talk about, uh, growing up and I talk about Mike Douglas. Right. I talk about this show. And I talk about how silly it was having him sing to John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And I look at John Lennon and Yoko Ono. They were co-hosts for a week. They weren't even allowed in the country at that time. Mike had them. Right. They're there for a week. And he sings to them. And he sings this song. And it's, hey, to John and Yoko, all my thanks for being my co-hosts. Hey, this week with you guys. Well, it's really been the most. <laughs> it's that kind of a song. Right. And there's pictures. You see slides of John and Yoko from the previous week. Right. All the things that they've done. Singing and dancing with Chuck Berry. Uh, talking with Kreskin. They're, you know, ha- hanging out with George Carlin. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, dancing with somebody. And so they, they, there's the pictures. I looked over at John and Yoko and John and Yoko are crying. John has to take his granny glasses off and he's wiping his eyes. He's seen everything. He's crying because of this. He had right. an experience. And I say, I, as much as I love Mike Douglas, I'm crying at home. Yeah. Because I don't want to say goodbye. Because oh. that was my connection. Right, right. So these kind of stories, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's him singing to John and Yoko <laughs> and then I don't want to say goodbye. Yeah. Jack Lemon said, they interviewed him, they said, they said, you're a comedian, you're a comedic actor, you're so great in Mr. Roberts, and you got all these great movies, 
and he would say thank you. Mm-hmm. And then they say, well, I saw you in Days of Wine and Roses, mm. and it changed my life. Yeah. So if you could do both, right, it would be really good, especially now. And if you could do it on television, it would be really good. Yeah. If you could bring it to television and make it, I mean, what podcasts have done is bring that immediacy to people that, because I don't really edit this. There's not a lot of editing. First of all, I don't want to. <laughs> and second of all, <laughs> the, uh, uh, it's, it's, it ruined, like when I say something inadvertent, let's call it inadvertent. <laughs> When I say something ridiculous or stupid or dumb or mean or, and then I get an email going, Hey, why don't you not be mean about some race, some job, some country, some God knows what I've said and, and whether it was taken out of context or not. Uh, if, if I've offended somebody, I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to get a, a letter about that. It feels, it makes it more real. It's human, and it's yeah. not glossy, and that's, that is the biggest statement that you, anybody could make in media today. Not reality TV, real. Yeah. Be real for a moment, it'll change the world. I'm telling you, it's, 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 it, it will change the world, because people will be flipping, and they're like, oh my God, what is that? I recognize that from somewhere, that's a feeling. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, Jim, get in here, there's a feeling. Oh God, this should be rated E for emotion. I mean, I mean you, you, you yeah. really could... And they'll never forget it. They may not even know know what it is, right? But they know they've been woken up. Yeah, it's 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 like when people say, "I saw this comic. I have no idea who it was or what happened," but they remember the joke. They remember the 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 emotion that was raised from that joke. They may not even remember the whole bit. Yeah. But it's it it is. You know, you're just like I just I laughed at how ridiculous I was about airline food when well, you know or insert whatever, but. That's the real moment. That's the resonating moment. And if you could bring that to television, that that is a gift. That is a gift that you would like to give to society. Well, I, you know, again, it, it's like if it didn't if it didn't come organically. If I sat down and I said, "What can I do?" and it, it is not one of those. Right. Right. It, it is. Oh my God! I just How realized. Can I sell a what show? do you know? Yes. I know this, and I know this. That's yeah. what I know. So so anyway, and then you know, make a company and really try to do it. Like you say, three hundred eighty-seven dollars. I have three hundred eighty-five. Right. And uh, now you do this, uh, you know, this crowdfunding thing where you go. Oh, the Kickstarter thing? I'm not sure I'm going to do that one. I'm going to do one called, uh, either called Self Starter or it'll be called Please Give Me Money Before I Drop Dead. Oh, That's dot com or dot org. <laughs> Are you thinking of uh, starting your own website? I'm thinking of starting my own company. Oh, company that's be, like it, that. It'll be called Commotion, which stands for Comedy and Emotion. Oh, nice. And the tagline to the company is We're Beyond Help. Nice. So like that, that. that's, that's yeah. what it is. It's, that's you great. know, and producing that kind of stuff, you know, whether it, because look, any, any movie that you watch, any TV show that you watch, that's what you want. You want to be moved a little bit and you want comedy. You want some entertainment. Right. Which is always, um, and I, I've talked about this before on the show is, I don't know if you've ever seen Steve Carell act in a film. I have. Uh, he has the weirdest choice because you know he wants to do comedy. Yeah. But he's, obviously one of the most gifted actors so he'll take something like the 40 year old virgin right and he'll make it resonate so hard that i feel like he's actually tearing strips off of my face i can't watch it i'm just like oh my god this guy is genuinely 
Like, I saw Dan in real life. I was just going to say that. That's the moment <laughs> when he starts singing that song. Right. And uh, Dan in real life. And Dan in real life. And he's singing it to Ju- Juliette Binoche or whoever. Weirdest casting ever. Weirdest cat. But he makes it work. He, he makes Dane it Cook work. And everyone around him yeah. rises to the occasion, yeah. which is why Crazy Stupid Love, the people that were in that movie, yeah. um, the fact that Marissa Tomei and Kevin Bacon and uh, ever played those pivotal, small but pivotal uh, bit parts. Yeah. Both of them Academy Award nominees at the very least, right? Yeah. And everybody acted so much better than the script to some extent. Yeah. And this is not to belittle that script because I would have thoroughly enjoyed without even thinking twice. I would have enjoyed that movie, probably bought it. If it were Hugh Grant and Sandra Bullock, but okay. um, but because it's him in that movie with everybody else rising to the occasion, even the children were amazing actors. In no, that I didn't movie. see it, and I didn't want to say I didn't see it earlier because I wanted oh, to fine. hear what it was. It's crazy. I think my wife love. saw it. Yeah. yeah, and it's it was just supposed to be a romantic comedy. Yeah, but in there was a point in the movie where you think, are are they going to kill the babysitter? Are they going to kill one of these children? And then you're, and then it passes and they don't because it's a romantic. No, they are not going to kill one of the main characters. But if there were music like in the Brady Bunch when they tied it to be sad and just slowed it down, da, da, they da, just slow the da, theme song da, down. Da, da, da. Yeah, they go. It was very poignant when they were trying to do the uh, seesaw teeter totter. Uh, the get in the Guinness Book of World Records. Listen, that it was a tearjerker. Who knows what happened there? But but I mean, it really, <laughs> you they they told you in sitcoms. But like you're saying, this is this is a guy who has a range, and and you know there there is something those moments you'll never forget. I don't know. I I can't. I it haunts me. That movie genuinely haunts me. And I'm trying to think, where can you put him? You need to put him in a Faulkner written sit like romantic comedy yeah you need to do a remake of the movie holiday oh yeah uh, sure. with carrie grant and sure. Catherine hepburn yeah you need to do maybe bringing a baby maybe he might be an amazing guy in bringing a baby you know that's a great idea i mean it's gonna be a hard because it was such a classic it's hard to remake these right. classics and it but... isn't broken bringing a baby isn't broken right. there, there's no reason but you would need something of that caliber yeah to put him in because when you put him in something that isn't it's like watching Meryl Streep in The Devil uh, Wears Prada. Yeah. She was in a different movie. Yeah. She was in a a a, a drama where there was comedy. She was in The Deer Hunter. <laughs> she was in the de- she was in The Deer Hunter Wears Prada, which is a different movie. It's it's I a deer with movie. a bag and then they're in uh, Pennsylvania. Somewhere. Right, and then other people are in some craptastic film that I thoroughly would have enjoyed if she wouldn't have been in the other half of it where I'm like, "Oh my god, she's amazing." She's amazing. Uh, yeah. My eyes go to her and I'm like, uh, and and coincidentally, and whoops, that might be Meryl calling now. Right. You know what I love about this show is that sometimes Life goes the on. The phone rings. Okay. And then uh, what I do is I go turn down the, the speaker or see, I hang up on it. See who's there. <laughs> see who's there. It's 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 your father and my mother. And they're calling because they've heard some things and they would like some time to uh, air it out. And your your father actually called and he said, who is that guy? I don't care. <laughs> but he asked the question and that's what I like. Yeah. <laughs> 
I wish my my father would just randomly call me up and just go, yeah, yeah I don't know what you're thinking about, but I, I just know I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. I hope it all works out for you, though. It's and, a good uh, reminder of how to live. It's a credo. You really don't want to care, but if you're someone's dad, you do want to care. But I mean, you're, it's like Kevin uh, Meany's I Don't Care song. Uh, How but does that go? I don't care. I don't care. My jokes don't go over. I don't care. Oh, he, does if if it doesn't go, he just breaks into he song? breaks into song. He did it on the Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was there, and Johnny Carson was under the desk, and he did it for about five minutes. That it's little kid. Be- I love Kevin Me. I'm, I'm a huge fan. But anyway, but but the, yeah, organic. That's a treat. Organic comedy. Anyway, you know, yeah, these people who who give you more than. You know more than the movie, uh, than the script requires, right? Uh, but you never. There's forget so it. much talent. There's so yeah. much talent in the world, and then yeah. you think we have to use it, and then sometimes you don't. Sometimes it isn't broken. Like I saw a mime, and I and it was an amazing mime duo from from Japan. Yeah, and I was sitting there going, "This is amazing." What 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 could I do with it? And I was like, "Hey." It's not broken. It's already doing the thing that it's doing. You don't have to do anything with it. Well, you're trained in, in when you live in L.A. and you're, you're in trained. show business, you're trained to be like, oh, that's a beautiful flower. Maybe it would be great as a goat. <laughs> Maybe it'd be the flower goat would be the name like, of it. And we'd have do, a book out of it. How do I jam that up a Chia Pet's ear? Yeah. It's <laughs> like, to what end? <laughs> that's what it trains you. And, and, and then all of a sudden, no one, you know, what you're not trained to do is to say, okay, Television is a box, and it's this big. Okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a bigger box. What you're trained to do instead is, I want to take the, the the country of Italy and fit all the things in Italy into this <laughs> tiny little box, and I'll try to trick people and tell them that it's ice cream. Right. That's it's, what you're trained to do. Right. It is. It is the craziest thing where where you don't. Yeah, and and it just and it spreads. It spreads from L.A. into everywhere. That it's insidious. That. I saw Nina Conti, who's Tom Conti's daughter. Okay. And she is a ventriloquist. Oh, my God. She, first of all, is very beautiful. She's about 35 years old, maybe 32. I don't know. But um, she's a ventriloquist. And she was at Montreal. And she was in Montreal. And uh, I saw her this last summer do ventriloquism. And I was thinking... She's so great. We got to lose the puppets. That's what that's the, a, that's entirely what the, uh, the industry is thinking as they're right, sitting there. Right. That's, that's a good looking broad. Let's, uh, we lose the puppets and, uh, what else can she do? And you're like, no, no. Do you know how long it takes to become a ventriloquist? <laughs> yeah, it's it actually the, a craft. It is the biggest project in the world yeah, <laughs> next yeah. to magic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> putting your putting your words into someone else's mouth is <laughs> something that people in LA should know about. <laughs> and and and, uh, and you know, but do but throwing your vote, but doing it well. Is you know, and she's really good. As an she's attractive really, woman who's doing you know, I wonder what weird. we could do. And yeah. and just like uh she's great. Anyway, so <laughs> Yeah, I enjoyed the show. Now I have to get back to making television. Um, but, right. but, but anyway, but that, that whole thing of like, it is just so much easier. Phil Rosenthal was on the show. Okay. <clears throat> he came on the show and he said, you know what's, he always tells us to write. I love Phil. He's a good genius. Who is he? He created Everybody Loves Raymond. Thank you. And he comes on and he says, you know what, you know what I always tell writers? I'm going to quote him now, Phil. He says, you know what's easier than making things up? Writing things down. And he's, and he wonders why you don't take what you're, what's before you. Right. And just let it be there. Yeah. Just work with that. Yeah. You know, most people are, you know, I'm a goat. I'm trying to be an, ant- I'm trying to be an antelope. Right. Uh, 
you know, be this our airport cop. That's all people. People are like, Jackie Cation, let's get 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 her a uniform. It's, uh, you know, and I would, you know, and if Kevin James wants to do that sitcom, I am available. Oh, my God. Because people look at him and go, you got to put that guy in a uniform. Quick. Put him in a uniform. Find a UPS. (laughs) Put him. All the uniforms. Sailor, maybe. Next. Hand that guy a mop. Oh, my God. Do something where, you know, and you think, well, what does Kevin James want to (laughs) do? Well, that's the thing. Kevin James is probably sitting home asking himself that very question. And he's probably using himself in the third person because he probably forgot who he was. Could I be Cyrano? He could be Cyrano. He could be Cyrano. He could be anything. Like you say, you make the choice at some point. You say, you know what? This is what I'm doing. And uh, we'll see. But then there's a lot of money on the line. And so yeah. It keeps you from it's a lot of money. It's I, I've told, I don't know if I've told this here, but uh, Lisa Langang. Who used to book Largo. That is so funny because I was just going to write her. Lisa Line Gang did, gave me the opportunity to do my first solo show in San Francisco. And she right. was the manager of the club. And I. At the comedy club in yeah, the Punchline, I think, at wasn't the, it? At uh, the improv. Or and I have not spoken improv. to her for many years, but she was a dear friend and. Uh, Head of development over at uh, NBC and then now Comedy Central. Yeah. And she at NBC had a, had a stand up show. A late night stand up show called Late Friday. Late Friday. Yeah. I was on it twice. And it's one of my favorite stand up stories because she, she ran Largo and it was 1999 or 2000. And she was like, I'm going to do this show. I'm not going to. And she didn't tell you what material to do. She said, you're going to do seven to 10. We're going to cut it down to seven. Tom Rhodes did 22 minutes, by the way. And, uh, it's a new, new record. And, uh, but she said, do about 10. We'll cut it to seven. Just think about TV clean. Uh, but it's going to be on late night and just make it interesting. And then I did and I did my set and I had the time of my freaking life. And then people got to do it again. And so I emailed her and I said, Hey, people are, people are doing it again. Can I do it again? And she said, yeah. And Bart Coleman, who is now also very, you know, working very hard in the industry and in development. Um, he was walking me to stage, to the stage at the time, to do my second set on late Friday. And as he walks me up, he's like, you're not going to do the same, any of the same jokes, are you? As he's walking me up. And I said, no, of course not. And he goes, I didn't think so. I just thought I'd check. So not only do they not ask you, I mean... Your brain's connected to the rest of you, you know? <laughs> it's not like you're going to do things that you know aren't right. Yeah. And Jimmy J.J. Walker told me this. Dino might. He yeah. said that when Merv Griffin and and Carson and when he was on all those shows in the early 70s, he would be on every four to six weeks. And he had to do new material on television because he didn't have enough material. Yeah, so and they had to buy jokes. They had to get, and I, a friend of mine, Fred Raker, I'm going to quote him. I just saw a very talented uh, writer who wor- wrote for Carson at a, at a young age um, and wrote for a lot of the comics. I did Fridays, a show called Fridays. They had a reunion recently. Oh, right. So he does, he, he, so he goes to Jimmy Walker, and this is Fred. I'm going to do your joke now. Fred Raker, San How do you Francisco, spell Raker? R A K E R. Just a very, just one of the funniest guys. I'll put him in the notes. Oh, he's the greatest. Well, he gives Jimmy Walker a joke. And this is a long time ago, you got to remember. Sure. But uh, the joke was uh, Chrysler has just come out with a new KKK car. Has a white interior, white pointy hood, and white wall tires. Goes from zero to Alabama in 60 seconds. That was the joke. Right, right. Goes from zero to Alabama. Okay. All right. So so now he's got, so that's what he would do. 
And right. you, would, you would, I need material. I need material. David Brenner. I did a hundred shows. Wow. Every night, it seemed like. He was uh, on yeah, at show. least once a week. Yeah. He's yeah. on television yeah. and the jokes that get burned. And yeah. I just listened to an interview with Johnny Carson from comedy.com oh. from 1968. And, uh, I have the CD. I'll, uh, I'll lend it to you. So, but the, it was a great interview with Johnny Carson and Johnny Carson was saying that he never does his club act on the show right. because, uh, then the jokes are burned. But, I found, I found, uh, things are different. Me, me and Johnny. No, but I, I found that people actually do kind of want to hear the classics. They kind of want to hear a joke that they've heard before and they're like, I want to see you do that joke live. The animal joke. Yeah. Or the, the weird Final Fantasy legend. I do a joke about a video game from 2001. Uh huh. And, uh, (laughs) and they would like to, to hear me tell that joke. And I'm like, allow me to try to remember that joke. And Bill Cosby always closes on the dentist bit to this day. Right. How much do I wish that he would close on the Noah bit? I oh, wish that he would close on the Noah bit. I love the do. Noah bit. We all do. That's just genius. It's and not that I don't love the dentist bit, but I love the Noah bit. Well, it's just, you know, it's somebody's, uh, somebody, the way somebody puts together their stuff. But, you know, I think, and more, you know, more important is how good of a time do they have while they're doing it? Are yeah. you sitting on a stool like Bill Cosby and just taking your time and For having an your own pace? For an hour and a half and just talking. Isn't it interesting that the, I mean, he's a genius at it, but the audience doesn't, they're not getting restless. They're, they're listening. Nope. nope. He's 45 a, years of stand-up comedy, he'll do that. Yeah, well, oh my God. This is funny, you know, for uh, stand-up comedy, uh, you're thinking, you know, where, where can it go? Like, how does... What's this generation? Because I'm thinking, you know, Richard Lewis has been doing, had, had done stand up for a long time. Those guys who came out of vaudeville, they did stand up for 40 or 50 years. Right. And they still had somewhat of a, there was a career. Yeah. Doing that. Yep. I'm Bob Hope. I'm going to show up. Yep. And, uh, and, and for our generation, I don't know what it's going to look like with all the technology. Well, Jay Wendell Walker, you know that guy? No. He was on Ed Sullivan, still does the road, does one-nighters. He's living the wrestler. It's not actually entirely awesome. It's not what you want to do. Yeah. No, not entirely, because he's, he's about 80. He's about 75, 78 years old. Good evening, folks. Good to be here. Good to be alive. <laughs> the first the first time I ever heard anybody say, where'd you guys learn to whisper under a helicopter? Was Jay Wendell Walker in 1994. And the club owner said, he might have written that. I th- he was doing stand-up comedy when helicopters were invented. He wrote. He wrote. Men and women are different. <laughs> that was, was his setup, and he happened to notice that when he was alive ten thousand years ago. No. Right, and there was the guy previously who wrote uh, the sawmill when that was invented. <laughs> what are you in a sawmill? And uh, <laughs> that's very funny. I yeah, I I wrote a joke once that survived uh, two administrations, both Bush administrations, because right. it was it could be used for both Bushes. Right. It was what, what was it? It was um, that they're both baseball fans. Oh, right. And uh, they were going to open the baseball season. They were coming to Arlington Stadium uh, for a special ceremony. They're going to throw out the First Amendment, and that was and Boom. that was beautiful. Yes. Uh, a joke you couldn't use for anything, but I would do it, uh, you know, and it would be like, oh. My Sarah Palin joke has now been turned into a Michelle Bachman joke, uh, which <laughs> They're is... They're all interchangeable. They are, as Michelle Bachman, of course, would make an excellent president if we lived in The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> uh, but luckily, luckily... The Handmaid's Tale, the references in this show, this is, the, this is my favorite kind of thing. <laughs> I love this. I love The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. You are an amazing guest, by the way. It's been an hour. Well, I'll tell you something. We've had quite a journey here. We have had quite a journey. What is the name of your podcast? Uh, it's called This Week in Comedy. That's it's right. actually called Humor Me with Ed Krasnick, but it's listed under This Week in Comedy because that's what we started. On iTunes? At. It's on iTunes, yeah. All right. 
Uh, and, That's right, uh, and it's humor me. Yeah, and, you know, it's uh, people... Uh, is there an edkrasnick.com? There is. All right. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff on there. There's something called Instant Comedy, which uh, we made a new show every week. Did it while I was at Fremantle. Oh, cool. That was a blast. Mo Collins, Jay Johnston, a lot of people. Oh, and, friend and, of the show, Mo Collins. Oh, she is... Gotta get her back on. ...the light of the world, my God. She is a lovely, lovely human being. Yeah. She's not been on since the pre-recording began. She's back in the old, uh, the uh, the 213 episodes when it was all conference call equality. 213 episodes. Sounding a lot like a Red Fox album from 1968. <laughs> We're at the Hacienda. <laughs> what, what are you going to do? Like, uh, how... And before we go... Because I know we're going to wrap up here. What uh, what have you learned from doing this show? Like, how has it become different for you over the 213 episodes? I'll tell you, we're, we're almost at 300. We're almost at 300 Holy now because this is, I think, wow. 76 or 77 huh. of the new pre-recorded. Yeah. And I, you know, what I'd finally discovered about a year and a year ago is that people really have something to talk about for an hour that they're enthusiastic about, that yeah. they're dorking out about. Yeah. Like when the way your voice changed when you started talking about the point and purpose of finding something real for people to watch. Yeah. That is your dorkdom. You, that's all you want. I hope so. <laughs> that I hope is, so. And you, then my voice went, then, then I died. Then I, then it was like, oh my God, who's it. this guy? All of a sudden yeah, we're who, talking about who's chocolate. This, who's this gentleman? Yeah. Um, but no, I, but you're that's right. what I've learned is that, is that there's, there's an episode with Kathleen Madigan and Laurie Kilmartin where they talk about the Kennedys. And there's a there's one Eric Drysdale writer for Colbert Report um, yeah. who loves Viewmasters. You know the Kachunk Kachunk. I love Viewmasters. Uh, Fifty minutes. Andrew yeah. Salmson talking about motherboards and operating systems and computers. Dense. Holy crap. I mean, and everybody. Every. I mean. But that's what I'm saying about comedians. That's why it's such a great idea that you have, which is which is that you you see the whole person. You see more than the last. And when it's funny, it is funny. Yeah, from Greg a different place. About baseball, talking oh. about old time. Fifty minutes about old timey baseball. Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. Right. That which is which is my favorite. Well, there's a good there's a time. This is the time right now when comedians are going to in media. You're going to see more and more uh, expansion of you know who are you, what are you about, and now be funny. Yep. But yep. all of it. And you can do it. You can do it. Don't think about me, but you can do it. Yeah, everybody can do it. Yeah. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat. <laughs> my hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh, my God. Thank we. You. Why don't we just call that as the end of the show?